So we're in a series, Fault Lines, and I'm going to be in uh, Numbers and then in 2 Samuel, uh, Numbers 21, by the way. Fault Lines is about this idea that, that there are very real potential places in your life, in your marriage, in your family, where there can be a shifting pressure, tension, that one day... It could, it could seem dormant for so long and you ignore all the tremors and symptoms and then one day everything changes and now it's become an issue. It's become something big and sometimes it leads to catastrophic events in our lives. And so we're just kind of dealing with those. And last Sunday I talked about this. If you weren't here to listen to it, I encourage you to go back. Uh, you can do it on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts, Elevation Indie. And listen, because we talked about truth, right, the truth tension, that if we're not careful, the world will give us a whole lot of lies, our culture will feed us lies, and we'll fall into the trap of living on that fault line and find ourselves misled by what we're receiving. But there is truth. How many know that? Say yes. You may have to amen me a little louder today, so. There is truth. Numbers uh, 21, verse 14, just one verse here. It's, it's, it's a strange verse because it mentions something that we don't always, or that we don't know a lot about. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. I'm just going to stop right there. Because when you read that verse and it says, it's said in the book of the wars of the Lord. We don't have that <clears throat> somewhere over time. It's it's been lost or discarded, and, and maybe in some archaeological find, they've dug this up. They were aware of it. The Lord didn't seem to think that we needed that for today. Are you with me? There's some things that have been gone, gone and lost to history. Sometimes in your life, you know, like something just fades away, and it's better it faded away than it hung on. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so the Lord didn't, didn't see the need that we needed this book of wars, but he did want us to have this book. Are you with me? This book. And what this book is, it is a book of families. In fact, when you look at battles in here, like the battle of David and Goliath, well, you can't read it without understanding the, the family of Saul and the family of David. It's this interwoven thing that, that it, from cover to cover, it's filled with families and, and family stories. And God knew that you would need to know about family because it would be that important. Now, we could look at just the Proverbs. I'll give you a few and get a lot of understanding. Proverbs 6.29. Yeah, it says, so, so is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Well, I see that in some of the family stories. Proverbs 10.1, a wise, wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Proverbs 17, 25, foolish children are a grief to their father and bitterness to her who bore them. Proverbs 29, 17, correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give you delight to your soul. Proverbs 30, uh, 21, uh, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. And it goes on to say in verse 23, an unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maid when she succeeds her mystery, mistress. The Bible is a story of family. And when you look through these stories of family, well, 
all of us can relate somehow to the depth of the pain, of the heartache, of the wounded places that we see that happens in families. Because throughout the Bible, there's families that don't always get it right. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I'll give you, let's start with the first family. First family. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Their marriage is having problems because um, Adam kind of stands there while his wife is tempted and he doesn't intervene. He's passive. The passivity of the American male is, is a problem. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Any, many men know what I'm talking about. I know the women know. You don't have to look far. I don't know of any TV sitcom that I watch, but I've watched some before. I mean, everybody loves Raymond. But Raymond's pretty passive. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like De Deborah's the brains and the courage of the whole operation. And he just got stuff on his shirt and looks like he's just goofy. First family, Adam is passive. And then his wife listens to the words of another that are different than what he's told her and believes and acts on that. I mean, that's a problem. I don't have time to get into all that today. That's a problem. <clears throat> they have two children, possibly twins, Cain and Abel. The sibling rivalry is so severe in this family that Cain kills his brother Abel. And then they have another family line. And by the way, Cain gets killed as well by a family member. They have another family line through Seth, but so many people are lost in that family. It's messed up. Somebody say it's messed up. Ten generations of people drifting away from God. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, because of his uh, lack of courage to stand up and say that his wife is his wife, he lets his wife spend the night with another man. That's what it says in the Bible. I mean, Abraham's got problems. How I many know I'm talking about? The struggle they have with infertility. She offers her maid. By the way, just because she offered doesn't mean she thought it was a good idea. Are you with me? She offers her maid, treats her, her servant just like she's a piece of property and he has a child. Now we're still dealing with the problems of that decision, of the Ishmael problem. It's still in our world today because instead of waiting on God, he steps into a situation. Then, here's the top of it all, because you know this is going to happen. She gets upset because now she has Isaac, the promised child, the one they've been waiting on, and now she sees Ishmael, and sees Hagar, and she's upset. And so her and Abraham just send her away. I'm just saying, that's not the perfect family. Are you with me? I mean, we'd like to find the perfect family that we can look and say, okay, this is the perfect family, so this is what Jacob's family, his sons, I mean, messed up, messed up, messed up. His wife, first wife, Leah, if we're writing a book about Leah, here's the title, When Your Spouse Loves Another and You Feel Unloved and Left Out. Not perfection. 
his daughter Dinah. Dinah's story is the horror of sexual abuse and then living through family shame. Because everybody in the family looks down on her after she's raped. Tamar's story. Tamar does, goes to extreme um, steps so that somehow uh, she can uh, commit to family against all odds. Well, let's look at the family of Jesus for a minute. I mean, Jesus was perfect. How many know that? Him on that, he's God in the flesh. He's perfect in who he is. But when you look at his story of his, the family that he has on earth, I mean, there's a pregnancy prior to marriage, and, and even though it's confirmed that Jesus is the Messiah, we all know that. Well, Aunt Myrtle, you know how she might have been. I mean, it's like 20 years later, and she's whispering over in the corner. Joseph, some of your Bibles will, will wrongly translate him as Jesus' father. He was kind of that picture of a stepdad. And, and maybe not the perfect ideal, okay, here's the man and the woman. You know how we sing the song. When you're a kid, you learn it, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Sitting in a tree, first comes love, second comes marriage, here they come, baby carriage. Well, it doesn't look like that with Jesus' family. Not only that, they lost him. I'm just saying, like, they should be the perfect parents and never lose their kid. Their kid should never be lost. They've, they've got the Messiah, right, the, 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 the child Messiah, and they don't lose him for like 15 minutes. They lose him for days. And then when they meet up, they're like, okay, what's going on? They're, they're upset about it. And they don't even know how to navigate the idea that he's about his father's business and what that all looks like. Didn't seem like they understood how to handle the situation. So let me tell you this. I'm preaching this morning on the perfection pressure because all of us, somebody shall all of us, all of us want a perfect family. Are you with me? We want the perfect marriage. We want the perfect life. We want it. But I just want you to know right now, it's unattainable in this life. Right? It's a flawed pursuit. You will find yourself hopeless perfection. Or if you think that somehow you've arrived, arrived at perfection. And, and I want to deal with David for a few moments. And I'm not going to preach long today because i got to do another. And I'm just believing my voice is going to get better as I go. You're maybe hoping that too. Pray for me. Uh, David has a storied life. I mean, if, if I could pick out anyone out of, of God's word and say, who looks like they have the appearance of somewhat of a perfect life? And, and I think David, he's got it. I'm talking about the early David. I mean, David's a shepherd taking care of sheep. He's not just any shepherd. He's the shepherd that God uses him to deliver the sheep from the pole of the lion and the pole of the bear. I mean, David's a little bit like the superhero shepherd. Not only is David a shepherd, you know, he's, he's this man's man. He's also, also a cultured guy. He writes psalms, poetry that is beautiful. 
that we still uh, read it today and, and see the beauty of the Psalms. And I can imagine David out there with his harp on the mountain with the sheep grazing, and he's just getting divine download from heaven of, of songs and lyrical content to write. I mean, David is this, this man's man who can, who can take on a lion or a bear, and he's also this guy that has artistic qualities that are beautiful. And then David is anointed. I mean, it's, it's, it's his family's house that Samuel shows up. Now, when Samuel shows up, it's a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal. Samuel comes over your house if he visited today. It'd be weird because he's dead, but I'm just saying, if we were in that day and Samuel shows up, I mean, because Samuel, his visit is going to be significant whether he's going to prophesy something to you to call you out or whether he's coming to bless. And on the day that he arrives at the house of Jesse, he's there to bless. He's looking for the next king of Israel. And all the sons of Jesse come forward. And one after another, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. Samuel is hopeful, but none of them. And then he asks, "Is you have any others? Well, there's David out there. Go get him. Get him. And David appears. The Bible seems to give the indication that David is a handsome guy. And he shows up, and Samuel knows by the indication um, and the direction of the Lord that this is the one. And he takes that horn of oil, and he anoints David in the midst of his brethren. All of his brothers know this is David's significant. He's going to be king. Because Samuel, none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, Samuel never, ever gets it wrong. He always speaks the truth of God. He always gives prophetic words that come forth and that are accurate. And David has this beautiful life now where he's here. Now, he'll be called upon to deliver lunch to his brothers that are fighting the Philistines. And he gets down there. Now, no one is willing to take on Goliath. Not the king, not the generals, not the warriors, not the soul. No one is willing to do this. And David looks around at them. The King James Version, it says this. He says, is there not a cause? We're the people of God. We have God's blessing. Just look at at the beauty of what David is doing. He's standing head and shoulders, even though he can't wear Saul's armor. It's too big. He's not at the level of these men that are fighting. But David has this passion and confidence in God that he'll step out and he'll pick up the sling, the five smooth stones. He'll take the stone and, and whirl it at Goliath, knowing that it's not in him. Right? Because he comes, you're coming to me with a spear and sword, but I'm coming into you in the name of the Lord. And Goliath, mighty Goliath, falls. Now David, the champion. David seems to win at every juncture. He fights battles and leads. When he's given the king's daughter, I mean, I mean, David, David's the star quarterback. He's the leader in the rock band. I mean, I'm just saying. David, David got a perfect score on his SAT. Whatever happens, 
David turns around, is good. That bad thing, Saul's pursuing him. David still comes out good. And, and, and David, here you see the, the, the beauty in what I'm saying, what seems like almost a perfect life. David won't respond to Saul with dishonor, even though Saul is out to get him. Saul dies. David then ascends to the throne. He is king. It's like every, every step along the way, because of God's blessing and because David is a man after God's own heart, David continues to see God working. God work victory after victory. Popularity, celebrity, whatever. Fame, fortune, whatever. David walks through it, a man of integrity. And then one day, 2 Samuel 11, 1, I'll read, and we'll read in 12. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Let me stop there for a minute because this is the shift. This is the point of tension. David has had seemingly perfection, and I get it. No perfect people, but, but get the storied life of David. And now he's kind of set back. His role, his job, what he should be doing is going to war with his troops. But he's made a decision. Life's pretty good. I'm comfortable. I'm not the young man that I once was, and I'm not an old guy. Some would say David's going, a little, going through a little bit of a midlife Crisis, not as young, maybe spraying a little Rogaine on. They've added Metamucil to his diet. Nobody knows it. He's king. He's not talking to anybody about his concerns and his worries and the feelings he has, but he's just hanging out while everybody else goes to war. Now, the Bible never does indicate that Bathsheba did anything wrong. And so I think to go there, is to go in the wrong direction. It's, it's in the day when the, the water barrels have heated up by the sun. Men are busy working. They're busy at war. She takes a bath on the roof. David, because he's not walking in the element of, of God's calling for his life, he sees her. He sins to find out who she is. And his servant, trying to give him a warning, tells him, that's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. He didn't have to say that to David. He's letting him know, that's somebody else's wife. Be careful, David. He, he, he can't correct the king in that moment, but he's trying to give a little insight. David, don't make this step. King, don't do this. Then he sends for her, sleeps with her. Sends her back home. Everything's kosher. Everything's good. Nobody knows about his transgression until she sends word that she's pregnant. Now the David, who's a man after God's own heart, who's walked in a close relationship with God, over time has somehow drifted till now he's saying he's doing the sending again. Send Uriah back. Send Uriah back to me. David whines and dines him. Says, go be with your wife, but 
it looks like in this instant that Uriah, a foreigner to Israel, Hittite, has a closer relationship with God in that he won't go to his wife while his men are out there fighting. So then David, thinking that he'd fixed it, and now finding that out that he didn't, he sends word to Joab, put Uriah out front. And when he gets out front fighting, have everyone else pull back so Uriah will be murdered. It's hard to see a life that was so together quickly fall apart. We don't know the timeline before 2 Samuel 12 happens, but it's, it's less than nine months. It's less than nine months. I want to read these few verses to you because I think it's, it speaks for itself, and I don't have to comment on all this. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel, verse 12, says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children to him. It ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if... That had been too little. I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Let me stop right there for a moment. David had had this life, as I've told you, this storied life, and now the rest of his life says that the sword shall never depart from your house. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because... By this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also who was born to you shall 
surely die. Then Nathan departed his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. That's a serious 15 verses there. Man after God's own heart, worshiper, all the, all the beautiful things that you can read about David. And David is now crossed over a line that's went from seemingly perfection to such a flawed place. Now, this is the story of our lives. All of us have transgressed. We've transgressed in our personal life, maybe even as I'm speaking now, some of you, men and women, young people, have transgressed in the way that you have dealt with your family. Now, Nathan immediately assures David. I mean, David said, the guy that did this with the lamb needs to die. And Nathan assures David that the penalty of his sins has been remitted and he's not going to die. But the consequences of his sins are going to follow him. And, and he would have to restore fourfold. In fact, Exodus 22.1, the reason David said this is that if someone steals a sheep, but the law said that you're going to restore four sheep for a sheep. So if, if you steal a sheep from somebody, you're going to give them four back. And so David says that man should restore fourfold. Well, that's what happens to David. What David said happens to him. The baby that Bathsheba's um, pregnant, this child, it dies. It dies. David's son, Amnon, would be murdered for raping his sister. Absalom would be slain for the division and dissension that he caused. Adonijah, David's son, would be ex executed in 1 Kings chapter 2. Four of David's sons, gone. Right, the sword of the Lord. I could go on about the troubles that David brings on himself. And I would just say this, that David's life and every family that I read about in Scripture can give us this, this peace that we don't have to feel isolated because our family isn't perfect, because your marriage isn't perfect. Don't feel disconnected and think you're the only one that doesn't have a perfect family. Anybody hear what I'm saying? Now understand this. Family is perfect. Family is what God ordained. It's what he instituted. It's not just our idea. Family is perfect. In fact, when, when the Lord likens his church, he likens it to a family. That when we uh, reach heaven, there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb for the family of God. Family is perfect. Families aren't perfect. The idea of family is perfect. Families aren't perfect. In fact, when God calls the church to be a family, he's talking about that we're connected, that we're support, that we're here for one another. We're, we're, we're doing a, I, I think about how we connect here at Elevations through steps, and we usually do them on Sunday, but, but on uh, the 31st of this month, it's a Wednesday night, we're going to do both steps in one. So if you haven't been through, I encourage you, register to be here that Wednesday night. Uh, we'll take you through hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, and you can connect. 
because you need to be connected to a family. I say this, if you know Jesus, you need to be part of a, of a, of a local church, of a church family. Anybody with me? Right? Not, not, not some orphan out there running around doing your own thing in danger. Right? If we saw, if we saw a three-year-old walking down the sidewalk out here by the road, any one of us saw that, we would go and get that child and try to help them. Because what we realize is that child needs to be a part of a family, and if it's not with its family, something's wrong. Are you with me? Right? And so as believers, we've got to be a part of a family. One of the ways we connect, the biggest way we connect at Elevation to become a part of this is through steps. And I encourage you, come Wednesday night, 31st. You can register at 7 o'clock. If you've been through steps or maybe you haven't, uh, maybe you want to come again. Sometimes hearing some of these things are good to hear again because family is perfect. God's plan of family is perfect. But families aren't. Here's what I know. All families are flawed families. All families are flawed families. So it's okay if your family isn't perfect. Somebody say it's okay. It's okay if your family isn't perfect. What's not okay, I'm going to help somebody. What's not okay is to think that your family is perfect because that's deceptive. It's deceptive to think, well, everything's good because one day when something doesn't go right and when something's wrong, it's going to blow you out of the water. Just know this, fa families, right, they aren't perfect. They're, we're flawed. We're not going to enter into that hopelessness of thinking that we're perfect. And David, one of the things I want to point out, three things this morning. First one is this, David quickly repents. And repentance, your rep repentance, is priority one. Number one, number one, repent. Everybody shout repent. I think the firemen, they, they've got it, they've, they've just about got it right. You know, they stop, drop, and roll. Let me help you. Stop. You don't have to continue doing that. Jesus makes all things new. Anybody know that? Say yes. And so you stop, and then you drop in humility before him like David did, and you repent. Repent means this, I'm going to change directions. I'm not going to continue going down the same way I'm going. I love it what David says in Psalms 51. This is, what he, this is, what, this is the, the, the psalm, the prayer of repentance that David makes in Psalm 51 after Nathan confronts him. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Your marriage, your family is worth repenting over. It's worth you stopping and saying, God, I've missed, I've missed the mark. That's what sin is. I've missed the target. And so, God, I humbly fall before you, and I repent. I repent. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, the church of Ephesus, they had left their first love, and the counsel to them was repent and do your first works over. 
right? It's when you've drifted. David, I don't know what happened to you, but you drifted to the point that you just, you're, 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 you're guilty now of adultery and murder and all manner of, of sin. And David, repent. You've left your first love. Get back. And I'd say today, if you don't know Jesus, that's the first step in having a, having a, a marriage that works and having a family that works. It doesn't matter how mixed up family might be. I get it. They use the word blended. Some are a tri-blend or whatever. You know what I'm saying? We, we come together, and what God can do is he can change and rearrange your life to bring about something that's beautiful. Give you a message out of your mess. Anybody hear me? Now, it appears that David... And David's family, at times, is his enemy. I mean, when you read about Absalom, it seems like he's David's enemy. David's son, who, who rapes his sister, looks like enemy. But they're not his enemy. You have an enemy, but it's not your family. Your family isn't your enemy. And so what do you do then? You don't fight with your family. You fight for your family. Right? You, 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 you make, the, you, you make the, the point of direction that you're going to fight for your family, not with your family. So you plead the blood over your family. You stand in the gap for your family. David, and here you see this displayed. David, even though God's told him that the sword's not going to depart, David, in a and with his repentant heart, now goes and he prays and he fasts for the for the child that Bathsheba is pregnant for his child that Bathsheba is pregnant with. He fasts and he prays. He fasts and he prays. What's he doing? He's fighting for that child. He's praying and he's seeking God for that child. He's heard what's been spoken and what he's going to deal with for his life, but he's fighting for that child. You got to fight for your family. You got to fight for your marriage. You got to fight for your children. And I, I and I wish I wish I could tell you that for every one of David's children, David did the same thing. But I don't read that in Scripture. He fought for this child. Oh, that he would have fought for Absalom, and he would have fought for Tamar, and he would have fought for um, uh, Adonijah and and the other children that he had. I don't read that. But I want to tell you this: that for you and I. We've got to fight for family. Do battle, war for your family in prayer, in fastings, in protection. You know, when you have a child and you go to the doctor or maybe you're at school, they ask this question. I'm glad they still use this. They'll say, who is the guardian? Boom, there's something. Sometimes the world still gets truth right. Parent, you are the guardian. You're the protector. Somebody's got to fight for your children. And don't think that the world's going to do it for you. You've got to fight for your children. And then again, we see David uh, having faith for his unborn child. And I would hope you get this, that, that you've got to have faith for your family. Your faith for your family is a non-negotiable. And faith 
faith, faith works this way. You see David do it when he says, right, his child's died, and he says this, I'm going to go to him. What a declaration, right? Child, because they're, they're like, David, you're eating now. Why aren't you, why aren't you not, why are you eating now? You, we know you weren't eating then. Now your child's dead. Why aren't you eating? He said, because I'm going to go to, he can't come to where I'm at, but I'm going to go to where he's, he makes a faith declaration that he's messed up and he's had all this stuff, but he's trusting and having confidence in the God that he serves and he's speaking in faith. Faith is displayed by what I say. We know that, don't we? I mean, faith isn't just believing a bunch of stuff and kind of having it in here. Real faith is when I open my mouth and I release it. Salvation happens when you believe in your heart and you, Romans 9, you confess with your mouth, right? It's not enough that you just believe that Jesus is who God's, uh, the Word says he is. You could believe that. The Bible says even the devil believes and trembles. It's when you release it out of your mouth that it becomes a faith statement. That's why the Bible says in Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? If I have faith in my heart, it's going to come out of my mouth. And you've got to have faith for your family. And many times that's in speaking declarations over your spouse, over your children, over your statements, making over your children, making faith statements. And, and it's, not, it's not this. It's not, you know, I'm speaking my child is going to be a star soccer player. I'm speaking that my child is going to be bilingual by age four. I'm speaking that... that uh, that my child will be an Ivy League recruit at age 14. I'm speaking that my child will receive and be a recipient of a Nobel Peace Prize by age 18. You hear what I'm saying? Some people, I'm speaking that my child is going to be an NFL household name by age 25. I'm not talking about that. Job said it in verse, uh, or chapter 22 of Job says, you will make your prayer to him, he will hear you, and you will pay your vows. You will also declare a thing, and it will be established for you, so light will shine on your ways. The NIV is a little stronger. The NIV says that you make a decision, and it's done. Declarations need to start at home. 